Hello, and welcome to Perspectives, a podcast by the Public Health Review, a graduate, student-led, online, peer-reviewed, open-access public health journal published by the University of Minnesota Libraries. My name is Caroline Sell, and I'm the 2019 podcast editor of Perspectives. Thank you so much for joining us and engaging in our public health conversations. In this episode, we wanted to learn more about outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases, in particular, the many measles outbreaks that have been occurring all over the United States. First, we talked with Chris Ayersman, Director for Infectious Disease at the Minnesota Department of Health. Here's our interview. Can you tell listeners your name, your organization, your position, and your primary research interests um, and focus of your work? Sure. Uh, My name is Chris Ayersman, and I'm the Director for Infectious Disease at the Minnesota Department of Health. In that role, I oversee all the infectious disease activities, um, public health activities that are happening in the state. Um, My background uh, was in vaccine-preventable disease, so most of my publications have been in that area, but um, I've expanded since that time. I was a voting member of the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. I'm a liaison to the National Vaccine Advisory Committee, and I'm also a liaison to HICPAC, which is the Healthcare Infection Control and Prevention Advisory Committee, and CORA, which is the Council on Outbreak Response for Healthcare-Associated Infections and Antimicrobial Resistance. So lots of different areas, but um, I did start out in the vaccine-preventable disease area. And how long have you been working in this specific position at the Minnesota Department of Health? Um, And broadly, how did you start becoming interested in infectious disease epi? I have been uh, in the position of director for 11 years. Um, I got interested in infectious disease epidemiology when I was in graduate school. I started actually working at the Department of Health in graduate school. Um, I have determined I'm too impatient for chronic disease. So um, I do like the, um, yeah, the, the speed, activity, diversity of infectious disease work. Um, so for listeners who might not be quite familiar with this specific area of public health or on our um, more specific topic of the measles outbreaks here in Minnesota and across the rest of the United States, how would you describe some of the main concerns surrounding vaccine-preventable diseases? Um, Well, you know, I can tell you that when I started here at the Department of Health as a graduate student, it was during the 1989-1990 measles outbreak, which was the largest measles outbreak that we'd had Um, in Minnesota. We had 460 cases at the time and three deaths. Um, And that outbreak was really driven by unvaccinated preschoolers. And it was noted that many of these children were involved in other federal programs, but were not getting vaccinated. And so as a result of that nationwide outbreak and some white papers that were written, it was determined that we needed to address the issue of under-vaccination due to lack of access um, and and lack of resources through a Vaccines for Children program. So the Federal Vaccines for Children program was established in 1993 to a large extent um, as a result of the, the large measles outbreak. 
And as a result of that program, we've seen a lot of the disparities in vaccine coverage um, eliminated because now, um, you know, all children can have access to vaccines regardless of ability to pay. So it's made a, a big difference. Um, but what we've seen since that time is a shift um, in public thinking from hey, vaccines, you know, baseball, apple pie, motherhood, and vaccines to, you know, a, a real um, questioning of vaccines, a distrust, an emphasis on, um, yeah, on sort of personal and parental rights. And so we're now seeing outbreaks, you know, several decades later, and these are, outbreaks aren't really about access, like we saw um, in, the, in 1990, 89 and 90, these outbreaks are really about choices that people are making related to not vaccinating. And so it's, it's kind of a completely different situation at this point. I mean, clearly when we're responding to the outbreak, the principles that we use, you know, the, the epi skills, the case investigation, those types of things, that is in some ways the same. Um, but when it comes to the techniques that are needed to really reach the population, um, you know, a, a government program that that helps eliminate cost barriers and, you know, um, improve access, that's, that's kind of not the only thing that's needed at this point. So over your time working on issues like measles outbreaks, back when the, we had the first outbreak here in Minnesota, the first big one in Minnesota, and now again when this came up again in just the past couple of years, um, what have been the biggest surprises you've seen um, in your work um, as your role of director of MDH um, related to these outbreaks? Well, you know, one thing, one thing that I guess is surprising, I think, to all of us um, that work in this area is just that you never dreamed that you would have a tool that was so effective in preventing disease and then have people reject it. So that in and of itself is, is something that we're, you know, we're all trying to kind of process. But one of the things in terms of the response was that um, because we have the Minnesota Immunization Information Connection, which is an immunization information system that has information on vaccination records for people living in Minnesota, um, we were able to really uh, target those individuals who were susceptible, make sure that they were excluded from um, public settings during the period where they could have developed measles. And as a result of that, we really saw, we were really able to sort of truncate the outbreak. So we have a graph um, that that staff put together and it looks at the trajectory of both the 1990 measles outbreak and the uh, 2017 outbreak. And what you see when you compare that is that the 2017 outbreak started with a much steeper curve, but was tamped down and stopped much more quickly. Whereas in 1990, it was a much graduated curve, much more gradual, but it kept going. We didn't have that capacity to um, identify susceptibles and exclude them. And that made a huge difference in our ability to control the outbreak. And I think we're recognizing how important that is and how some of the tools that we have now are facilitating that. 
So would you be able to more broadly also expand that to other measles outbreaks that we're seeing here in the U.S.? They come up all the time on the news, um, whether they're communities in New York, communities in Washington, um, all over, even in Europe, there have been a lot of measles outbreaks um, going on. So, Well, definitely. I mean, I think um, when we when we talk about um, kind of our outbreak. In fact, I had the chance to, to speak at the at NVAC, the National Vaccine Advisory Committee, earlier this month, and I said there were two words that kind of I thought were important take-home messages, and one was exclusion and how important that was in our ability to um, control, slow down, and eventually stop the outbreak. And then the other was um, relationships and trust. And the reason that I say that is because, you know, these outbreaks that we're seeing are occurring in populations who are choosing not to vaccinate. And these populations mistrust government, they mistrust vaccines, they, they're just, they have concerns. And so if we're going to be successful in reaching them, it's not just a question of putting someone on a street corner that makes vaccines available. It's actually addressing their concerns. It's building trust. It's it's investing in them. And so that's one of the things that we've talked about with the Somali community in Minnesota, which is where we had seen um, low vac- have seen low vaccination rates and saw measles cases. Was that if we're going to be, you know, have an impact, it's got to be ba- built on relationships. Um, we have, you know, Somali outreach staff, and they do a lot of, you know, one-on-one meeting with mothers groups, meeting with small groups in the community to talk to them, to listen, to address their concerns. So those were kind of the, the messages that I shared, that these are our lessons learned, that when it, when it comes to, um, you know, controlling an outbreak, that ability to do exclusions is really important. Now, I don't want to suggest that... <laughs> Getting people vaccinated isn't important. We want them to we want them to get vaccinated, but we also know that um, we've got to use exclusion. And then when we think about that bigger issue of folks who are choosing not to be vaccinated, it's really about you know being respectful and building trust. If you look back, um, and I would say even you know over the course of my career, um, you know it used to be that if a government official said something or provided data that that was sufficient um, and 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 taken believed and taken you know for what it was. Um, now we have a lot more storytelling and anecdotes are much more important to people. So you can have all the data in the world, but if someone comes and all the data in the world may say the sky is blue, but if someone comes with a personal story to suggest otherwise, it really diminishes your data. So we've got, we've had to learn to be more creative, tell more stories, you know, not just give a statistic and, you know, walk away. Um, And then also that we have got to, you know, be credible in the community and build trust because again, you know, saying I'm from the government and I'm here to help is not sufficient. You might have already touched on this a little bit, um, but what are the biggest challenges that you're facing right now, um, even though you know we had this outbreak in Minnesota in 2017, um, and what would be the best solutions to addressing these challenges? 
Um, well, specifically related to measles, I mean, when we look at the data following the outbreak, we saw some increases in MMR coverage in our Somali population, which was great. It, um, it went all the way up to 58. We were at 42% coverage, which is really low, and it went up to 58, so we saw, or 59, we saw some improvement, but then we've seen that drop back closer to 55%. So we recognize that while we made some progress, it's not magic, it has to be sustained. We also know that the progress that we did made did make was clearly insufficient to uh, squelch another outbreak. So we know that it's entirely possible that we, we could see more disease here. It, you know, it's kind of a matter of time if we continue to see outbreaks around the country. Um, and so we recognize that we need to do more outreach with the community. Um, and that's where the challenge comes because that one-on-one -on -one connection is great, but it's very difficult to scale up. I mean, we practically have to have dozens, a hundred staff to be able to, to do the kind of outreach and have the impact that we'd like to have in the community. And so that that is challenging. So we're continuing to look at, you know, how can we use the resources we do have to make a sustained impact um, on the community. The other thing too is that, um, you know, we're, we're definitely thinking about measles, but one of the things that um, has not garnered quite as much media attention are the large hepatitis A outbreaks that are occurring nationally. Um, in individuals who may have been incarcerated, who experience homelessness or um, unstable housing, and who may be people who use um, drugs. And, and those outbreaks haven't gotten quite as much attention, I think, because the populations that are affected are that much more disenfranchised. But we're, we are actually, we, we are making sure, working to make sure that we're taking the actions we can to prevent that from being able to gain a foothold in Minnesota. So um, we're thinking about measles because of what's happening nationally, and we're also thinking about hepatitis A. Why are measles outbreaks um, something that everyone, not just public health professionals, um, should be concerned about? Um, because uh, as a disease, although, you know, historically measles might have been considered a, you know, disease of childhood that you know, oh, everybody got it. I mean, children died. There were long-term consequences. You can have measles encephalitis. You can have long-term um, kind of immune issues following a case of measles. So measles is a disease that can be, um, you know, very severe. And so we want to, we want to take advantage of the tool we have to prevent it. It's like we've moved forward um, with the tools that we have to actually prevent a disease from happening, and yet we're rejecting those tools and we're allowing it to continue. And that's, that's a concerning trend, and I think it's, I think it's a misappropriation um, of sort of the idea of natural, that natural is better. I mean, certainly, you know, we all recognize that spending time outdoors, that exercising, that, you know, eating healthy, that those are all good things, but somehow in the process of embracing a healthier lifestyle, some things that are really um, important public health measures like vaccination, which prevents disease, like pasteurization of milk. Um, these are all really important public health steps that have moved us to a longer lifespan and a, a safer and healthier way of living. 
sometimes those can kind of get thrown out with the, ba the bath water, the baby out with the bath water in this desire to kind of be more natural and, and thinking that we're being healthier. So that's that's sort of a challenge I think that we're facing in public health is that we, we may unfortunately be rolling back some of our successes just because of people's uh, misperceptions about what natural and health really means. Um, and what can the general public do to address some of these issues um, and support the work of public health professionals such as yourself and your team here at MDH? Well, you know, one thing that we have really tried to um, emphasize is that there's been a lot of attention to the individuals who choose not to vaccinate. And it, it's a concerning um, issue and a concerning trend. But one thing that we've tried to, to do is to remind people that the vast majority of parents 95% of parents are vaccinating their children. So that really is the norm. And so one of the things I'd say is if you're a parent who vaccinates, I think it's really important that you make that known, whether it's to your elected officials or just kind of acknowledging that I vaccinate. Because what ends up happening is that it's a silent majority in part because the people that vaccinate just think, hey, well, this is just the norm. This is what you do to keep your kids healthy. But because of the pushback from individuals who are more vocal, who don't vaccinate, it's important that we hear from that large majority who does. So that's one thing that I would say to the public is if you are vaccinating, it's important to be a little bit squeaky about that and let people know. The other thing is just that Vaccines are a fabulous tool to prevent disease and take advantage of them, whether it's making sure that you are vaccinated against measles or getting an annual flu shot. If you're, you know, over 50, getting the shingles vaccine, you know, making sure your children and grandchildren are protected against diseases. I mean, I think we want to make sure people take advantage of these tools. And then we also want to make sure that they're um, vocal about that. So they get counted in that majority. I think that's important uh, for the public, you know, the, the rest of the public to know, as well as our elected officials, because that will help influence policy. Um, and on that note of some more higher level policy um, initiatives and things, I don't know if um, how familiar you are with the mayor in New York announced like a, a public health emergency regarding measles in New York. I don't know if you yep, yep. And, re and remember said, that and can speak yep. on it. And said um, that, you know, people had to be vaccinated and mm -hmm. uh, or they were going to be fined. And I think that they were also maybe going to be forced to be quarantined. Yeah. How, how, how do you feel about kind of high-level policy measures like in New York? Well, I mean, there, there will come a point in any situation in which there may be a need for drastic measures. I mean, you know, that that could happen in, in, in any situation. What we found in Minnesota is that um, when it comes to exclusion and things like that, we have, we have never had to use our isolation and quarantine statute. We've always been able to have people, um, you know, agree to the, the value of our request that they, you know, exclude themselves and limit um, their community engagement. Um, and we do always want to try the least restrictive means. Um, I do think, however, that there, there may, there could come a point in a situation in which, you know, you feel like we have got, you know, we are not getting anywhere <laughs> with uh, these 
voluntary measures. We need to do something more drastic. But what we what we have found in Minnesota is that um, we've had a very responsive population, and we've been able to go with the least restrictive means to achieve our public health goals. And I think we would always want to do that. But I also I also recognize that when you're dealing with you know, cases, hospitalizations, the fear that, you know, we know that at a certain point you're going to, you're going to start seeing deaths just because of the, the sheer number of cases, you know, you're having to think through some of those things and make choices. But I'd say that um, we want to, we want to use, we want to have good policy. We want to respect people's you know, rights under the law, but we also want, our job is to protect the public's health. And we're always going to start with the least restrictive means and then we will move up as needed to protect the public's health. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Um, so maybe something we didn't touch on or didn't elaborate enough on that you'd like to make a note regarding measles outbreaks, vaccinations, vaccine preventable diseases, any of your personal work with MDH? I think, you know, our, our, our bottom line perspective is disease is bad, vaccines are good, so use the vaccines to prevent the disease. Um, that's kind of our, our perspective. And we would certainly love it if everyone was vaccinated and we didn't have all that much to do. Thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to speak with us. To provide us with another research perspective on the measles outbreaks, we also talked with Maria Sundaram, a postdoctoral fellow at Emory University through an NIH fellowship on vaccinology. Here's our interview. Can you tell listeners your name, your organization, your position, and your primary research interests? Yeah, of course. Uh, my name is Maria Sundaram. Uh, I am a postdoctoral fellow at Emory University Rollins School of Public Health. Um, and my postdoctoral fellowship is through the NIH and it's on vaccinology. Um, so I am I consider myself an epidemiologist and a vaccinologist. Uh, I study uh, a lot of vaccines that have to do with direct like, uh, public health impact. That includes researching influenza vaccine effectiveness, uh, meningococcal conjugate vaccines, and of course, measles. And how long have you been studying and um, working on more specifically the measles outbreak? And how did you become interested in, I guess, the broader topic of epidemiology and vaccinology? Well, I got my master's degree in public health in 2011, um, and I was really fortunate um, after I got that degree to work with a lot of organizations that were very uh, research but also directly policy-focused. So they, they had a research question, but the research question was geared towards kind of a direct impact. Um, one of the very first uh, experiences that I had uh, working in public health was to write a report for the UN Office on Drugs and Crime uh, in, in the Kingdom of Eswatini. Um, they had this information on the infectious diseases that were in Swazi prisons, and they needed someone to translate that information into kind of uh, real-world recommendations. Um, and that was such an amazing experience for me um, because they, I made the recommendations and they actually took them and, and did what I recommended, which was, which was amazingly powerful. And after that, um, I was hired to work on influenza vaccine effectiveness uh, at Marshfield Clinic in Wisconsin. And um, I didn't really understand how uh, vaccine effectiveness in the U.S. was being calculated 
Um, I thought it was a very small kind of uh, group of people that then the values got extrapolated uh, to the broader country. Um, and I got to work on this uh, one site of this huge five-site uh, observational study that uses this uh, case control design called the test negative design to to look at genuinely just find out who is getting flu and were they vaccinated. Um, so definitely real-world implications. We report those estimates to CDC every year. CDC reports them to the public every year. Uh, that was super exciting as well. And I kind of maintain that interest. It's really exciting as a public health professional to uh, notice that what you're doing has some real-world impact for people. And when I came to Emory, um, the measles outbreak in Washington was growing. There's also a measles outbreak in New York City, New York State, New Jersey that was growing. And, And we said to ourselves, wow, this is really an important issue. And maybe people don't understand the full impact of what's happening. As epidemiologists, we like to look at numbers of cases. and We we have a case count, we have an epi curve, um, and those are things that are all familiar to us. But maybe what we don't realize is that the impact of a measles outbreak is way bigger than just the number of people who get sick. There's really long-lasting strain that's put on individuals and also communities and health systems, um, including public health systems. And we, we were realizing that maybe people don't take that into account. And so we we wanted to explain, hey, you know, this is a much bigger problem than just one person getting measles, although one person getting measles is also a pretty big problem. For some of our listeners who might not be quite as familiar with all that's been going on surrounding measles outbreaks all around the country, including right here in Minnesota um, and across the world, how would you describe some of those main concerns surrounding these increases in measles cases? Definitely. So to give you a little bit of a history, um, measles, before the vaccine was made first available in 1963, measles caused about 500,000 cases uh, of of measles uh, illness, uh, 50,000 hospitalizations, uh, 1,000 cases of permanent brain damage, and 500 deaths a year. And this vaccine was just really instrumental in reducing measles cases and deaths um, until there was a resurgence in 1989. Uh, And that was due to probably almost solely due to low vaccination rates. And um, a couple of things happened then. First of all, uh, we started focusing on younger children and we wanted to make sure that younger children were fully vaccinated. The uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices recommended that there should be a second dose of measles vaccine. Uh, for young children. And we also instituted uh, the Vaccines for Children program, which helped anyone get a vaccine regardless of, you know, whether they could afford it. Um, That's a super important program that has doubtless saved countless lives. Um, And in 2000, we were able to declare uh, that the U.S. had eliminated measles uh, endemic transmission. So that just means uh, that there is no ongoing, uh, within the U.S., ongoing endemic transmission of measles, which is a huge, huge accomplishment. And obviously, it took several decades and a lot of work and a lot of money. This year, there have been, um, I think the current case count is 1,123 individual cases of measles in the U.S. This is the highest number since 1992, and it's the highest number since measles was declared eliminated in 2000. Um, and this is uh, due to a few uh, 
larger outbreaks, including one that's going on in Washington state and one that's going on that I mentioned in New York, uh, New York City, New Jersey. Um, But as you mentioned, there have been past outbreaks, um, including the 2017 outbreak in Minnesota, which had 75 cases. There's also a 2015 outbreak at Disneyland in California that had 147 cases. So the question is, you know, why is measles still declared eliminated if we are having such high numbers of measles? This is the distinction between endemic measles and imported cases of measles. So the outbreaks that we're seeing are someone um, will go abroad where there is a, a current measles outbreak happening. Um, for example, the 2015 Disneyland outbreak was linked to an outbreak in the Philippines. Um, the current 2018-19 outbreaks, um, have some of them have been linked to travel to Israel, where there's also a measles outbreak going on. And then those people will come back to the U.S. and they'll be they'll be in a community with very low vaccination coverage. And so this is really unfortunate because, first of all, you don't want anyone to get measles, um, certainly not if they're traveling. But secondly, those outbreaks could have been prevented by better vaccination coverage in those communities. Um, and this is this always makes me think of uh, this quote from Senator Paul Wellstone, which is that we all do better when we all do better. Um, this is a great message for uh, vaccination coverage. <laughs> we all do better with measles when we're all protected against measles. So now that we're seeing larger numbers of cases and more frequent outbreaks in the U.S. due to low vaccination coverage, there is definitely public concern that we could lose our measles elimination status, and that would represent a huge public health loss, both of like personal effort, human work, and, and also money. Uh, millions and millions of dollars uh, have gone to making sure that measles continues to be eliminated in the U.S. Yeah, that would be very scary. That would step in the wrong direction there. Definitely. It would be very scary. Um, And it's definitely something that we don't want. But public health professionals are fighting um, an active battle against a couple of different things. And one of them is mistrust of vaccines. Another one is active engagement from anti-vaccine groups. For example, Andrew Wakefield, the author of the infamous uh, Lancet paper that was retracted, came, as you know, came to Minnesota specifically to talk to people who were vaccine hesitant about not vaccinating their kids against measles. And that was one of the factors that kind of created this perfect storm for the measles outbreak we saw in Minnesota. Would you be able to kind of compare and explain some of the differences that we've seen in past measles outbreaks with the ones we're experiencing today, specifically um, the different ones across the United States and and the world? But like you you mentioned, um, Washington, New York, Minnesota, Disney, what are some of those main differences or are they all really similar? They actually do have um, one really big thing in common, and that really big thing is that there have been there's been low vaccination coverage among the population that has been exposed to measles. Um, measles vaccine is actually super, super effective. Um, we believe with one vaccine, um, there's 93% effectiveness, and people get two doses of the vaccine. Um, so if you're fully vaccinated, you have excellent protection against measles, and the risk of an outbreak is very low. Um, as what was common among um, the outbreak in Disneyland, the outbreak in uh, New York and New Jersey, and the outbreak in Washington State is that people have had lower vaccine coverage in those communities, and then they've been exposed uh, to a case of measles. And 
um, as you know, measles is incredibly, incredibly contagious and very communicable. Um, one of the things that we look at when we are assessing the danger of an infectious disease is something called the reproductive number. Um, that's basically just, if I have measles, how many other people am I going to give measles to? For for many diseases, it's one or two people. For measles, it's between 15 and 18, we think, people. And not only that, measles virus is very happy to hang around in the air for quite a long time. Uh, in fact, uh, let's say I'm in a room and I cough in a room, I leave the room, um, and if you enter the room up to two hours later, um, you can get measles <laughs> from my cough. Um, so this is it's it's like a match on really dry kindling. If there's a population that's not protected against measles and they're exposed, to think of it from the measles virus perspective, it's a great environment for this virus because it loves to spread um, wherever it possibly can go. I think the the main factor in a lot of these outbreaks is just low vaccination coverage. What have been some of the biggest surprises that you've seen and research um, on outbreaks of vaccine preventable diseases such as measles? There, I think there are two things. One of one of the things that we found when we were we were researching this paper for the Journal of the American Medical Association on the true underlying cause of measles is that it is incredibly expensive and in, like takes an incredible amount of just social human capital to control a measles outbreak. There was one particular case of a, a student who flew on a plane back from India, had measles, and exposed probably thousands of other people's people to measles um, during the time that they uh, were in the airports and on the plane. And as a result, the public health community had to track down more than a thousand potential contacts. They had to get subpoenas for flight records. They had to test everyone at the hospital daily to make sure that hospital workers hadn't been exposed or weren't exhibiting symptoms of measles. And that was thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars just to respond to one case of measles. And it's important to think about the fact that it's not that those people were doing nothing before the measles <laughs> uh, case happened. They had other jobs that they were doing that they were forced to, you know, set aside to, to respond to this. And so this is it really represents a weakening of the public health infrastructure as we're trying to respond to these illnesses that are preventable, entirely preventable. The other thing that I think, I won't say that it's surprising, but it is one of the most significant challenges we face as vaccine epidemiologists is the difficulty in communicating with people who are vaccine hesitant. I think really good communication is extraordinarily important here. Really good risk communication is extraordinarily important. And historically, not many vaccine epidemiologists have had the training to do that in an effective way. We need like evidence-based ways, interventions to talk to people about why they don't want to vaccinate their kids, why they don't want to get vaccinated themselves. We need to respond with empathy instead of saying that's wrong, uh, because <laughs> telling someone they're wrong is a really great way to get them to not listen to you anymore. That is something that I think maybe has been overlooked in the past, but that we, we really need to focus on. Yeah, so that kind of goes into my next question, which you have touched on a little bit, but maybe you could expand on more broadly. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges you believe we are facing right now regarding um, all sorts of infectious disease outbreaks, maybe going into some of your other experiences and work with the vaccinology 
and what would be some of the best solutions to addressing these challenges? Definitely. Thank goodness we have uh, the Vaccines for Children program. We have a lot of other programs that make sure that everyone can be fully vaccinated in the U.S., regardless of their ability to pay for health care. That is a significant burden in some other environments that we don't have in the U.S. That's something that's really important to think about when we're thinking about outbreaks outside of the U.S., but we're very lucky in the U.S. that we have the ability to give everyone the vaccines that they need. Um, I think the biggest challenge within the U.S. is communicating with people who are vaccine hesitant and getting them to to see that vaccine scientists want the same thing that they want, which is for, for them and for their kids to be happy and healthy um, and fully protected against infectious diseases that could kill them or, or give them permanent brain damage. We need to find some common ground, um, and I think there's plenty of it, <laughs> um, so that people trust vaccines again. And, and it's, I think it's worth noting, too, that hesitancy around vaccines is not a new phenomenon. Um, this goes all the way back to the very first vaccine. Uh, this is actually kind of an interesting story, uh, to me at least, and I hope it's interesting to you, too. There is this woman who is the uh, wife of the British ambassador to Turkey. Her name is Lady Mary Wortley Montague. And when they traveled to Turkey in the 1700s, she noticed that people were inoculating their children against smallpox in order to prevent a full-blown smallpox disease. And she herself had suffered from smallpox. Uh, she was disfigured by it. Her brother had died from it. And she very willingly inoculated her children against smallpox, and they were thereafter protected. And she wrote in one of her letters um, that she wanted to bring this practice to England and that she predicted correctly that the English uh, physicians that she would talk to would have no part in it. And this was, um, you know, partly as a result of there being kind of some cultural xenophobia, you know, between uh, England and Turkey, and also partly that English male physicians were not really willing to listen to uh, a woman. But it was her work and her advocacy that helped Edward Jenner develop a vaccine against smallpox. And that was, to date, this is the only infectious disease that we've ever eradicated in humans. It's definitely not a new phenomenon, people being afraid of, of vaccines. It's definitely not something that we've been trained on as vaccine scientists. And it's really surprising that we haven't because it's been such a, a part of our culture since vaccines have been around and even before then. So I think it's something that's definitely ready for some research, definitely ready for some training for, for us. Um, so I just have one kind of follow-up, maybe broader question to kind of give some scope to the issue and bring it back, maybe a little bit closer to home for some of our listeners. Um, why are measles outbreaks and outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases more broadly something that everyone, not just public health professionals, should be concerned about? That's a great question. Um, they affect everybody. Um, and, and I, um, I hope that everyone, you know, knows that everyone who's ever seen a zombie movie knows that, you know, there's no one who's special. If you get bit by a zombie, you're going to be a zombie. And, <laughs> um, infectious diseases are kind of, they're, they affect everyone. They're, they love communities of people. And we are just as humans, we live in communities of people. Um, so this is something that is a responsibility of all of us um, as members of our own communities, that we have to take steps to protect ourselves and we have to take steps to protect the other members of our community. And one of the best ways to do that is to be vaccinated. 
we also need to remember that um, a lot of infectious diseases outline for us um, existing social inequalities. Measles is extraordinarily highly contagious and affects people who aren't vaccinated. In other countries, that might be people who can't afford to be vaccinated or who don't have access to the vaccine. Maybe they live uh, in a rural area. In the U.S., we see this with other infectious diseases, including HIV. It's people who have been historically underserved by the public health system and by medicine in general, and people who don't have the ability to advocate for themselves um, that are that tend to be at higher risk. And that is really an extraordinarily important thing for us to remember. And I think it's our duty to make sure that we're protecting those who have a less ability to protect themselves. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you'd like to follow up on? Maybe we touched really briefly and you want to expand or something that I didn't ask that you would like to mention that would just kind of help connect some dots for our listeners or anything else you want to add? I think um, maybe the last thing I'd like to add is I mentioned briefly that I think it's important for people to communicate about vaccines with empathy. And Something that I hear pretty frequently is frustration about people who don't want to vaccinate or are afraid of vaccines. And I understand that. I think it's difficult as a scientist to say what you, you know, say the truth about um, vaccines, that they're safe and effective and have someone not listen or disagree with you. But I think it's very important to remember that we have a duty to communicate in a meaningful way uh, with the public, especially with those people who are scared to vaccinate or who are hesitant or just want to know more. And I think it's really, really important to approach that with empathy. And that's what I would recommend. Thank you so much, Maria, for taking the time to speak with us. We hope that these public health perspectives on vaccine-preventable diseases, particularly measles, provide our listeners with new or better understandings of how we can all impact these issues in public health. Thanks for listening to this episode of Perspectives. We'd like to extend a big thank you to our featured guests for taking the time to speak with us and share their expertise with our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to check out the other episodes of this podcast, as well as our journal publications. You can find all this and more at our website, z.umn.edu slash pubhealthreview. Thank you again for listening to Perspectives.